Today's scripture reading will be from Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 28. This is the reading of God's holy word. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rules, rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from the heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders from them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. The grass withers a flower face, but the word of God stands forever. Much time has passed already, so uh, let me jump right into the the message. I I titled today's message, Being a Faithful Witness in a Negative World. And there are quotation marks around the words, you know, negative world, because 
I'm borrowing this expression from an article that I recently read that was written by a guy named Aaron Wren, who is the executive director of a newly founded organization called American Reformer. And I'm going to make the full article available to all of you this week uh, so that you can use it as a supplement to your small group discussion. Uh, but for now, uh, let me just share with you the part that is most relevant to the message this morning. And so he writes, in recent decades, the church has passed through three eras or worlds in terms of how American society, okay, so he's not talking about the entire world, but just narrowing his focus on the American culture, American society. It's uh, in terms of how American society perceives and relates to the church. And uh, he breaks it down in three parts. These are positive, number one. Number two is neutral. And number three is negative world. So it's a positive world, neutral world, and negative world. With the names referring to the way, again, society views Christianity. And so here's some more description, all right? Uh, number one, positive world. Uh, he argues that this is the pre-1994 world. Uh, that may sound a bit arbitrary to you, but he has rash, some reasoning behind it that uh, he explains in the article uh, in, in you know, greater fullness. But for now, again, just the description here. He writes under the positive world, Christianity was viewed positively by society and Christian morality was still normative in this pre-1994 world, okay? And so often the expression is used like, you know, the U.S. was once a Christian nation, and it's because Christian morality was considered very reasonable and normal. Uh, to be seen as a religious person and one who exemplifies traditional Christian norms was a social positive in this particular world. Christianity was, in fact, a status enhancer in some cases, failure to embrace Christian norms hurt you in this positive world. Number two, neutral world. He, he argues it's between 1994 and 2014. Um, description, Christianity here is seen as a socially neutral attribute. It no longer had dominant status in society, but to be seen as a religious person was not a knock either. Christian moral norms retained some residual force, okay? That's a neutral world. Number three, the negative world. That's 2014 and till the present day, right? In this world, being a Christian is now a social negative, especially in high-status positions. Christianity in many ways is seen as undermining the social good. Christian morality is expressly repudiated in this negative world. And so that's what I mean by negative world this morning, okay? It's a world that is actively hostile against God's moral laws and the idea that repentance and faith in Christ is necessary if you want to be saved from sin. That concept is pretty much foreign and, and even repudiated by the world. See, in a positive world, it was easier to enjoy positions of higher status and privileges as Christians. In a neutral world, it became a little more difficult. In a negative world, you have an extremely slim chance of being accepted by those in power. Think about our immigrant parents. Our immigrant parents sacrificed virtually everything for us, haven't they? Why? So that, for the most part, we could be sent to the best schools. Why? So that we could be successful in this world 
and have a seat at the table with our cultural elites. But, you know, the world has changed. And if faithfulness unto the Lord is your number one priority, you need to be fully aware that you are more likely to be persecuted for your faith in this negative world than enjoy worldly recognition. Some of you have been asking me for more practical guidance in how we're to live in today's world because you've, you've been hearing me just harping on this culture, you know, on, our, on a regular basis. And you would say, Pastor Paul, we get it, we get it, you know, just, but can you offer some practical advice then? How are we to live? And, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I have all the answers. I don't. And, you know, our, our responses to this culture will differ somewhat depending on the various social contexts we're in. So I can't hash that all out, you know, from the pulpit on Sunday. Don't expect me to. I've got to paint with broad strokes here. You know, even our greatest thought leaders are still trying to sort things out themselves. But what I can say with great confidence is that we do have God's word to guide us. And though God's word is not meant to be read like some kind of, you know, how-to Christian manual that offers these quick and easy solutions to our problems, God's word is truly sufficient to make us wise and to equip us to live a life of holiness and faithful obedience to the Lord. Our series in the book of Acts is especially helpful in answering this question of how we're to live because the early Christians were the first Christians who had to learn how to live in a very hostile right, and negative world. So here's my outline for today. Part one, the harsh realities of living in a negative world. I just want us to reflect about it a little, little more. What does it look like? Part two, the temptation to compromise in a negative world. It's, a, it's something we're facing every day, right? Every day at work, at school. The temptation to compromise. And part three, the courage to speak the truth in a negative world. That, to me, that's bare minimum requirement. That's bare minimum application to speak the truth in this negative world. If you can't even do that, right, I think there's a deeper issue going on in your heart. You really don't, you're not interested in learning about the practical application of how to live. You're, you're just scared, right, and you, you feel paralyzed. Part one, the harsh realities of living in a negative world. Let me highlight for you the trials Paul and Barnabas had to endure through on this trip. Right? It was a very treacherous trip. Our passage today says that they are now in a town called Iconium. But remember that they had just fled the city of Antioch, Pisidian, because the Jews there, they became like these activists that we see in our culture today, very organized. Right? They mobilized these followers. and They're act actively now inciting violence against the apostle Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul and Barnabas are now forced to flee from that particular town. And so it says in, the, in our previous passage that their response was to shake the dust off their feet and go to the next town. And so here they are in Iconium. And just as you would expect, so we see this often as these apostles minister, you had many who believed, right, who, who embraced the message of Christ, but also many who rejected their message. And it says in verse 2 that the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned 
their minds against these brothers. They poisoned their minds. I, I, I took some time to reflect upon that because you see it often in our day. People's minds get, get poisoned, and it's hard to communicate when someone's mind is poisoned. You know, when your mind is poisoned, that means your mind has been seriously compromised. It's been infected by the lies and the false propaganda of the day. As you often see happening today, see, there would have been things said in the ancient world that would have been meant to discredit Paul and Barnabas so that people would approach them with suspicion, right, rather than with an open mind. In our day, for instance, if you use the word like racist or homophobe, right, these, these words, they become weapons now, to silence people. It's done to discredit people, even good people, so that their opinions would be ignored. I just learned that, and I'm sharing this not because I'm angry or anything. Uh, I'm actually a bit humored at this point. I may become angry later if it continues, but I just learned, I just learned that there are these false rumors going around in Northern Virginia that I am some anti-vaxxer. <laughs> Is that funny? To be clear, I'm not. I, I was one of the first people who received the vaccine, and I have nothing against those who choose to get vaccinated, but I am strongly against these incredibly dangerous and authoritarian vaccine mandates that are further tearing up our country. But that's another message. I'm not going to get into that right now. My point is, by labeling people anti-vaxxer, for instance, when they're clearly not, is a cheap attempt to discredit them. So going back to our passage today, in response to the, the, these attempts to discredit their voice, Paul and Barnabas, they choose to remain a long time in Iconium in order to properly disciple those who have been poisoned in their minds. And we're told that in the end their ministry was quite fruitful. But it also says that in verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. Notice uh, when words don't work, right? When these verbal attacks don't work anymore, what do people do? They, they resort to violence. And so again, now they're, they're not only using words to attack, they're going to use physical violence. They raise their stones now. And once, once uh, Paul and Barnabas learn of this, it says that they do the same thing. They shake off the dust from their feet, and now they go to the next town, Lystra and Derby, other cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country, and there they continue to preach the gospel. This was sort of their pattern. Now, something does unexpectedly happen in the city of Lystra, which I'll comment on in the second part of the message, but before we go there, I want you to first see how determined people were to resist and threaten Paul and Barnabas in Lystra. Okay, and how Paul and Barnabas chose to respond to such threats. Because they do something other than shaking, shaking the dust off their feet, okay? They, they, they do something else, and uh, I think that's worth looking at. First, in verse 19, uh, it says, Jews came from Antioch and Iconia. I think there's a slide. Is there a slide you can project for us? Do we have that ready? Did I? I forgot to tell the uh, 11 o'clock media. 
Is there like a map? Oh, there we go. All right, so just, just to remind you, and, and keep, sort of keep your eye on verse 19 if you have your Bible open. Okay, it's kind of hard to see, I guess, but let me just, you can follow the red laser here. Here's Antioch where they started, okay? Antioch to the island of Cyprus where Barnabas' hometown was. This is about 100 miles or, or, yeah, 100 miles or so. So you can kind of follow this blue line. They go from Salamis to Paphos to the lower coastland region of Perga and Pamphylia, and Paul gets sick. He has to travel to the uh, healthier mountain climate of Antioch, Pisidia, where they get driven out by these Jewish activists that mobilize against them. And he, he goes to the next town, Iconium. Uh, that's our passage today. There is some pressure mounting there, so he goes to Lystra and then to the Derby. But then in verse 19, what it actually says, right, he, he, uh, he's around this area here. These, these people, about 100 miles away, they actually travel all the way to this region here, right, to bring hell, <laughs> to bring hell upon Paul and Barnabas. And so it says in verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and, have, and having persuaded the crowds, they, they actually stoned Paul. So Paul, he doesn't have time to flee. You can turn the lights back on. And he drags him out of the city Supposing that he was dead, I guess the older Barnabas somehow escaped. <laughs> Paul, Paul is the main spokesperson, so I think they were targeting him first. But when the disciples gathered about him, he, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to, to Derby, right? And so this, this is a miracle. You know, uh, he got... He got stoned, and the people actually who stoned him thought he was dead, right? And so they must have gotten him really good. Uh, you know, from their experience, you know, he was surely a dead man from what they've seen. So well, I, I count this as a miracle. God, God said, Paul, your time is not, not yet, and so I'm going to basically uh, preserve your life uh, and have you endure even through this stoning. And so it's, it's you know, the author Luke, he, he states in such a matter-of-fact way, but this is, this is incredible in, in terms of how much suffering Paul had to endure, right, even through this, this uh, you know, brief encounter with these people. And, but then he goes, he just kind of dusts himself off, and he goes to the next town, Derby. And then, this is what really sh shocks me. It says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they they basically retrace their steps. I mean, who in their right mind would go back to the place you were just stoned at, right? I mean, but it says they returned to Lystra and then to Iconium and then back to Antioch where there were these like organized, this basically organized mob going after them. And they did that not, not to like duke it out with these, you know, these uh, violent people but in order to strengthen the souls of the disciples and to encourage them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so they became this living example of people enduring so much persecution and, and physical suffering, right? And it wasn't just words, right? It wasn't just words they were just uttering. It was like, this is what we're experiencing, and this is how 
We're to enter into the kingdom of God as a suffering people. Right, look at us. We're being stoned to death virtually, but this is how we as believers must enter into the kingdom of God in this kind of negative world. Must have been a powerful teaching moment for all of them. Brothers, sisters, anyone willing to sign up for this kind of mission trip? You know, it's really hard for us to imagine being on the receiving end of such hostility, isn't it? I can't imagine. But as bad as it was for the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, a really good argument can be made that the world in which we're living in now, and here I'm not just talking about the American culture, okay? I'm talking about the broader world, right? The world we're living in now is far more hostile to the Christian faith than it has ever been. Let me share some statistics with you, okay? Open Doors USA, which uh, compiles data and, and, and comes up with these statistics, estimates that one in nine of the world's Christians, okay, one in nine of the world's Christians experience high levels of persecution in the top 50 countries where it is most dangerous to be a Christian, right? So, you know, countries are ranked from most dangerous, I think North Korea is still on top, right, to, to least, but the top 50 countries, I mean, these, these are countries where, where it was never positive or neutral toward Christian, Christians. It was always virtually negative, okay? And drivers of persecution include, it says, religious nationalism in places like India and Burma and secular authoritarianism in places like China and North Korea. And for at least 68% of Christians being persecuted, the driving factor is adherence to Sharia law, right? Authoritative Islam's brutally repressive and supremacist Islamic law. I know that's very non-PC of me to say, but it's true. Gordon Conwell's Center for the Study of Global Christianity's annual report on the persecution of Christians say nearly one million Christians were martyred from 2005 to 2015, the span of 10 years. One million Christians. And you've heard this expression before, but this is also true. More Christians have died for their faith over the last 100 years, right? Over the past century than in all prior centuries since Jesus' time combined. That is a very hostile world, don't you think? And, in, you know, in the Western world we live in, and in this American society we're living in, you know, we may not experience this kind of violent persecution yet, but we are experiencing something that has actually never happened in all of human history. And, and Carl Truman summarizes it quite well. It's an article I sent out to you that earlier this week. I'll just read it an excerpt, okay? Think about what's happening in our day. It's never happened before. Even the basic concepts that are meant to sustain culture and society, they've been eroded, redefined. He writes, failure to conform to new orthodoxies on race and morality and sexual orientation and gender identity is the main reason orthodox Christianity is despised today. These postmodern tenets rest upon cultural theories that cannot 
accommodate Christianity precisely because they underwrite today's academic refusal to discuss and weigh alternative claims to oppose critical race theory or gender theory is to adopt a moral position that the culture's panjandrums, you know what that word is? I didn't know. I didn't look it up. Basically, it means a self-important person, just the cultural elites of our day, you can think of it as. To oppose critical race theory or gender theory is to adopt a moral position that the culture's, you know, cultural elites regard from the outset as immoral. It doesn't matter how nice you are, just on the basis of what you think, you know, like sort of what David Chappelle said not too long ago, a boy has this particular organ, a girl has this particular organ, right? That's become immoral to say that. Just because you say that, you think that, you're cast out. The slightest hint of opposition, Carl Truman writes, disqualifies one from admission to polite society. This is the world we're living in. This is a very negative world. So these are the harsh realities. Part two, the temptation to compromise in such a negative world. Let's take a moment to look at uh, what unexpected, what this unexpected incident is that happened in, in Lystra that I referred to earlier. First, we know that Lystra did not have much of a Jewish presence because wherever you know, Jews went, they would establish these synagogues, right? Because that was their center of worship. Uh, but here in Lystra, there, there is no synagogue. And so we, we see, uh, we read nothing of the Apostle Paul visiting synagogues as we've done the previous passages. Here, uh, Paul, he, he, I guess he's doing some street evangelism. But uh, it's like when people, when the people of Lystra, they, they witness Paul's miraculous healing of a man who is crippled since birth. Anyone would have been astonished, but they were not just astonished, right? In response, it says that they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods, the very gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes because Paul was the chief speaker. And it goes on to say that the priests of, uh, of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to them with the crowds. And so here, here's a question I want you to seriously consider. When the world chooses to elevate you and to honor you, okay, even to the point of treating you like some god, which actually does happen in our day, by the way, still. What should your response be? You know, I, I thought about this. I, I think the temptation to receive such recognition and honor would be great. The temptation would be great in any kind of world, positive, neutral, or negative, but it would be especially great in a negative world, right? Because I would be tempted to reason, you know, man, things are so hard now for Christians now, I can use this power. I can, I can use this kind of recognition I'm receiving for a very good and noble purpose. I can leverage my new status to point more people to Jesus, and maybe I can help turn this negative world into a, a more neutral world and maybe even to a positive world, back to the good old days. But here, here's the thing. While you're doing that, 
you know, while you're embracing your new status, what happens? Truth becomes misrepresented and the gospel becomes distorted in the process. Because one of the reasons for that is the gospel is supposed to preach more of Jesus and less of me, right? It's supposed to be about dying to self so that we could make much of who Jesus is and give him the honor and give him the glory that he deserves rather than receiving praise for ourselves and diverting attention away from Christ. So what do your hearts crave? Do you see how we can be tempted? I remember a time when I was a youth pastor back in Philly many, many years ago when I was more energetic and was able to keep up with these teenagers. I organized a youth retreat. It was a summer retreat, and the theme was creation versus evolution, right? Exciting stuff, right? I know. I invited a very brilliant speaker. He was a like, PhD in science, and uh, he was really good. His presentation was spot on, very helpful. Uh, I mean, he didn't preach. It was more of a sort of a series of seminars, which I thought was necessary at the time, given how the culture was going, even back then. And so I, I, I appreciated all that was being said, but... Toward the end, he, he approached me and said, uh, hey, Paul, um, I know this is being recorded, you know, it's fine, you can record it, but, you know, can you not post it online anywhere? Because, you know, basically, I'm trying to get a job <laughs> teaching in a, in a university or college, right? And so I was a young guy, you know, I, I said, fine, that's, that's no problem, not a, not a problem at all. We'll just uh, keep it in-house. How's that? He said, that's fine, all right? But honestly, after thinking about more, and especially my older, older age now, I, I think that's, that can be a big problem, okay, depending on where your heart truly is. Because it can really be about, look, basically what he was saying was, Look, if my colleagues find out that I actually believe in some kind of creationism, right, I will not get the recognition and financial security that I want. And right now I want to be recognized as a reputable scholar in a secular field. Does that jive well with what we're seeing here in Scripture? In contrast, what we see in verse 14 is this. And this should surprise you a bit. It surprised me. You know, it, it's, it's kind of weird. I've never seen anyone do this. It says, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd. I just I want you to picture that, right? Grown men, right? Tearing their garments running to the crowd, not in a gentle voice, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? Don't you know that we also are men just like you? We have your 
very same nature, and we want to bring you good news. You should turn away from these vain things to a living God, it was the message. He is the one who made the heaven and the earth, not Zeus. Do you realize what this is saying? And, you know, for those of us who really want practical application, I think bare minimum is saying this, that when you see distortions of the gospel being promoted and, and just casually spread around you, show some emotion. <laughs> Let your voice be heard. If you're not going to tear your garments and run out to the crowds like the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and at least open your mouth and say something meaningful that would bring honor to the Lord. When, when IHOP was share, uh, being, being spread in this area, not, not the Pancake House, but the International House of Prayer movement kind of died down, I think, but it's still still around, uh, a few people advised me not to open my mouth in any critical way. Even when IHOP and later NovaHop was leading many, were leading many people astray, particularly younger generation. But, but after a year of, of waiting, my conscience would not allow me to remain silent anymore, and so I spoke out, and my only regret now was that I didn't speak out earlier. Now, I want you to know that the reason why I've been outspoken against movements like BLM and, and critical race theory and the LGBTQ plus movement and the way our government officials and big tech have been abusing their power and distorting reality is for the same reason. It's because God's truth is at stake. God's word is being distorted by all of the above forces. And if you choose not to, not to intentionally take a stand against these things, you will inevitably be controlled by them. Can't you see? It's not, it's not that hard to see, honestly. It just, it just takes some courage to actually take a stand and speak the truth. That's where our problem is in today's society. There's a lack of courage everywhere. And there's so much cultural pressure to just kind of go along with the narrative that is popular. I, um, I heard my, my boy share with me what, what took place in his school setting. He, he goes to a Christian school. Christian schools... They're a decent option, but they don't guarantee godliness, right? They don't guarantee that students will, will be, you know, safe from these, these lies and distortions. Kayla was sharing with me, hey, it was like a conversation they had with a group of, of uh, peers, and the question was, you know, should a Christian baker bake a cake for a gay wedding, okay? And a few of them basically responded with, you know, well, if you don't, then you know what, you're being a homophobe. You're being homophobic, right? 
And so Caleb asked me what I thought. I was like, what do, what do you think that even means, right? right there, a lot of people in our day, they're, they're using these words as a weapon to basically silence any dissenters. And I said, there is a difference between someone who maybe owns Home Depot selling, you know, chairs and tables and stuff needed to, to set up a, a wedding ceremony, you know, some wood perhaps, uh, maybe, you know, audio tech place that sells speakers um, where someone can just go in and, and purchase stuff or, you know, rent stuff. But there's a difference between that and a florist or a photographer or videographer or even a baker, right, whose specific role is to glorify the event, beautify it, to make it look really, really good and special. And that's a problem for the Christian because we believe that in the eyes of God, it is not a beautiful event. It is not good. In fact, it's an abomination in the eyes of God. And so there's a conscience factor to consider that is so important. And so I told them they're just probably regurgitating whatever they heard in social media or maybe their parents believe that, but they're wrong. They're probably not Christians. Right? Their thinking is very shallow. Be careful of such people. If you can't even recognize that distinction, brothers, sisters, you're, you're a very worldly-minded person, and you need to immerse yourself in God's word and become wise in the Lord. Part three, the courage to speak the truth in a negative world. The courage to speak the truth. They, they retraced their steps. They hit Lystra again in Iconium and went to Antioch, proceeding again, and they did, did so in order to strengthen the souls of the disciples and encourage them to, to continue on in the faith. And they said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And one commentator writes, why is this so? Why? And the answer is that the closer you live to the king, the more likely you are to draw enemies' fire. Right? So why must we enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations? That's why. You know, trials are not an indication that those who oppose us are triumphing. Trials are, in some ways, a corroboration that we are on the Lord's narrow path. And if we find that the world thinks well of us, especially in this negative world, if this negative world speaks of us in laudatory tones, perhaps it may be a reflection of how much like the world we have become. So brothers and sisters, I want you to heed the warning of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verse 26. He, he says, Woe to you when all the people speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets the same way. In other words, their ancestors spoke well of these false prophets who, who essentially just who said whatever people wanted to hear instead of saying what God put on their mouths. These false prophets, they sought the approval of the world. And so the message that Jesus is giving to us is, do not seek the approval of the world. 
remain faithful to God. That's the main point. But how can we find the courage to speak the truth in a negative world? How can we endure the various trials that are bound to come our way? I know it's hard. I get tempted too. But when I am tempted, you know, when I am tempted to remain silent in fear, and I'm a very fearful person, believe it or not. I am a very fearful person. My, my dad, when I was younger, used to call me urbo. You know what that means? Crybaby. He used to make fun of me. <laughs> You're always crying. And I'm still a very fearful, fearful person, right? But when I, whenever I, I'm tempted to remain silent out of fear, it helps to remember that Jesus suffered much for our sake, and that he was faithful to the end. When I'm fearful, it helps to remember that Jesus faced the ultimate rejection so that I could be eternally accepted by God. And it's important for me to remember these things because it's only when I remind myself of these truths and experience once again the love and the grace of God where I begin to view this life once again as merely temporary. It's when I think of these things I begin to view this life once again as an opportunity to actually express my own love for the Savior instead of trying to just self-preserve and self-preserve and self-preserve. So brothers and sisters, remember your Savior and anchor your lives in Him his grace is sufficient for you. And brothers and sisters, when you do experience rejection, and you will, it's going to hurt. <laughs> of course it's going to hurt. I mean, the Apostle Paul was stoned. And he probably was, he probably was thinking he was going to die just, just by the pain of it. But in spite of the pain and hurt, notice he, he does not, he did not abandon the mission. He did not grow bitter toward God, rather he returned to those same towns that rejected him in order to strengthen the believers and, and tell them that, hey, look, look at me. See, Jesus is really worth dying for. Let's be in this together. Let's be willing to die for him. I can tell you that as a pastor, I am doing my very best. I know I'm deficient. Okay, I know they have many shortcomings. I've I've made some mistakes along the way. I've apologized to some of you. <laughs> but I'm doing my very best to follow Paul's example of faith. Right? As he followed Christ, as he called upon his, his followers right, to follow him as he followed Christ. I, I'm doing my best to follow Paul's example of faith. And I, I ask you okay, that you would do the same as well. C.T. Studd, the great missionary to China, India, and Africa, once said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Think upon that. You know, more people over the past 18 months or so have asked me to, to be a more public voice. Pastor Paul, why don't you start some kind of podcast? Like, what? No. What a bad idea, right? Why don't you join us in doing this or that? We need, we need more alternative minority voices. That's one strain. 
And I honestly, after mulling all these options over, I honestly don't know what I'm going to do because, quite frankly, maybe it's, it's probably clear to you, I, I don't want the exposure. Okay? I'm not, I don't do very well under the, under the lights. I don't like it. And I'm sure you don't want the exposure either. Right? Some of you are very, very uncomfortable when my name was blasted all over Facebook in 2020, right? But, okay, but as the culture becomes more wicked, okay, some of us will be called to be more of a public voice. Okay? And that may be me, I don't know yet, but it may be some of you as well. I'm not, I'm not saying that all of us are called to do the same thing. But some of you, depending on how God has gifted you, you may be called to become more of a public voice. <clears throat> so, brothers and sisters, pray that God would grant me more courage during these troubling times we're living in. And pray that you too would be counted by God as men and women of faith and courage. Okay? I don't know exactly what that's going to mean to you, practically speaking, but again, broad strokes here. Big picture is pray that God would count you as men and women of faith and courage. Cling to the Lord, anchor your soul in him. Right? Trust in him for his provision. Do not fear God, do not fear man rather, but fear God. Let's pray together. Dear Father, because Jesus was rejected even though he was innocent, we have been given new life. But even still, we confess that the harsh realities of living in such a negative world often tempt us to compromise and become more like the world in which we live. Forgive us for our fickle hearts. Forgive us for our fear of man, our fear of death. Grant us the courage to faithfully live in obedience to your will as we remind ourselves of the security we have in our risen Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand together and give praise to God.